What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the program once again. If this is your first time joining us, thanks for checking out the podcast. It comes out every Friday on iTunes and Podomatic. You can also visit dancablepresents.com, which is the central hub for everything Dan Cable Presents. You can find things there like the freshest episodes of the podcast or the link to the YouTube channel, which features in-studio performances and live performances from both Portland, Oregon artists and uh, touring acts as well. And um, if you'd like to help the show grow in a free way, please go ahead and hit subscribe on the iTunes to the podcast. And then every Friday when the new episode is available, it will automatically notify you and download to your feed, as well as any bonus episodes of the podcast. So you can do that. Hit rate and review. Give it five stars. Say a few nice words. And then you will be directly contributing to the sustainability and the growth of this podcast and uh, helping getting some more national visibility for it. I cannot stress the importance of uh, the iTunes reviews. And uh, those of you that listen to this uh, podcast week in and week out, you know it because you hear me talk about it every week. So if you haven't done it yet, it only takes a minute. So please, you know, give it a review. And uh, that will be your your way to support this thing. Giving you free content every week. So uh, just just hit it with a review. That's all I'm saying. You know, maybe share one of your favorite YouTube videos. Maybe tell uh, your friend at work who also likes podcasts about this podcast. You know, things like that will uh, will really help contribute to the growth that's all i'm saying and uh and then i don't have to do this every week i don't have to say this this goofy goofy thing about the reviews every week but i appreciate all the supporters out there regardless uh we're we're 80 plus episodes deep we got episode 81 today wild we got porsche sabin on the show from kill rock stars records which uh was a real treat to to head over to the the headquarters there um, or here, rather, in Portland. Kill Rockstars is a, is a big indie label that's been operating for about 30 years. And um, I had the chance to sit down with the president of the label, Portia Sabin, and we chatted about her musical beginnings, how she got into all of this, and how she eventually took over the label from, from her husband and, and how it's grown over these last 30 years or so. And Portia is just an incredibly knowledgeable woman about the music industry and just a uh, a wealth of knowledge. It's, it's pretty mind-blowing. And um, it was very cool to get to get to chat with her about those things. And, you know, we, we talked about commercial pop music a little bit and, and how often... There's a lot of garbage going on in there, you know. I definitely dig my fair share of some some more commercial things, but I also see the the pitfalls of it and acknowledge that you know 
most major labels are are just seeing dollar signs. So we talk about that and just how Kill Rockstars operates on a completely different level and works more with uh, a lot of you know middle class musicians, um, people that you know don't have to have day jobs, but you know they're not living living some crazy glamorous rock star life. So this is very cool. Um, I appreciated being able to, uh, to, to hang out with Portia and get to hear some of her takes on things. We talk about streaming music and, and whatnot. Um, Portia along with running kill rock stars also has a wonderful weekly podcast herself and it's called the future of what? And, uh, they're actually celebrating their hundredth episode. A live taping. It's going down October 25th at the Holocene here in Portland. Just got a really cool um, list of guests in store for you. So check that out. It's gonna be it's gonna be rad. I'm trying to make it down to to the live taping there. So that's October 25th. Uh, the podcast is called The Future of What. We talk about that as well in the conversation. So hundredth episode. Uh, congrats on that, Portia. That is super killer. I am uh I'm right behind you. You're eighty one. You're number eighty one. So coming up, I feel like on a hundred is uh yeah. That's a, that's an incredible milestone and um I feel like it's gonna come up for this podcast incredibly quick before I know it. Be trying to lock that in. Um also just a few other calendar dates before we get into the episode of the podcast. Um, October 26th, the day after the future of what 100th episode, also at Holocene, October 26th, October 26th, I can't even talk, uh, Siren in the Sea, very cool band, um, as well as Small Million, former guests of the podcast, and they're also going to be joined by Amenta Abioto. hopefully I am saying that one correctly, because I'm not familiar with that artist, but that's going to be a killer show, Siren in the Sea is very killer, and if you uh if you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm a big fan of Small Million. They were on episode fifty. You can find their videos on the Dan Cable Presents YouTube channel, as well as the the episode on the old iTunes. And then October twenty eighth, very cool Halloween show going down at uh, the Kennedy School. It's Adverse Effects and Falconheart, both former guests of the podcast. It's gonna be very cool. Adverse puts on one of the greatest shows in this city. And uh, word on the street is Falcon Heart has something very special in store for everybody. Maybe something a little more or out of the ordinary for their regular folk explosion of of tunes. And then uh, finally, November 5th. Um, don't miss this. November 5th. This is for all you mus- musicians and music industry folks out there. Uh, the Mogo Music Business Forum is going down, which is hosted by Chris Young of Vortex Magazine as well as Jason Fellman of JFL Presents. This is going down at the Doug Fur on November 5th. It's 1 p.m. It's a Sunday afternoon. And uh, the topic this time around is the DIY musician. These are free music forums, free education for people. This is not something that goes on in every city. So I would encourage you all to, uh, to check that out if you want to get some some free information, some free knowledge. They always have very cool panels and um, 
I just got a lot of love for both of those dudes. Chris and Jason have been super supportive of this podcast, and they've also both been guests on the podcast, so you can check out their episodes as well. So check it out. November 5th, it's going down. Logo Music Business Forum. Um, also, I just want to say thank you to uh, the Ladybug Foundation, which is a local um, foundation going down here in portland it supports uh cdh which is a uh it's a serious birth defect and uh i had the the honor of playing a benefit show for that over this past weekend so i just want to say thank you to to liz for having me out um it's been a while since i played a live show i played a solo acoustic show and it was very cool to to be out there again playing tunes in front of people and I don't know. It just feels good when you're doing it for something uh, more than money or more than just for yourself, but but for a really cool cause. And I met some very cool people and uh, it was an all ages event. So it's also very nice to get to play for for some younger folks, not just some like teenagers, but some some very young kids. And um, yeah, there, there was one one little dude in particular who uh seemed to take a liking to my songs and he actually um you know like remembered one of the names of the songs and and kind of really dug it and uh i got to meet him after i played and uh he's probably not listening but i just wanted to give a little shout out to to greg greg was a, a very cool kid and uh i don't know it just uh it gave me a nice feeling it put a big smile on my face that this this kid was so into the tunes and um i don't know i don't really know what else i have to say about that but it was it was just a a very cool moment and also just stoked to be playing music in front of people again and uh happy that that i got a couple shows on the books coming up so i'll keep you posted on that I've been so inspired by all these people that I've been having on the podcast. I feel like I've I've learned so much from from all these folks that have come on that I have so much to apply to my my own craft now and and all this crazy access to to all these musicians around me. So um yeah, that's enough rambling up top. Sorry to keep you waiting for this wonderful episode with with Portia from from Kill Rock Stars. We're gonna get into it. We got some. Uh, we feature some tracks from different artists on the label. Uh, we're kicking it off with uh, Filthy Friends, which is a uh, rock supergroup. Super rad. It's uh, it features members of uh, Sleater Kinney. It's got Corn Tucker of Sleater Kinney, Peter Buck of REM, Kurt Block, and Scott McAfee of the Minus Five, and uh, Bill Rafflin of Keaton Crimson. So crazy good lineup in this band. Um this is my favorite tune off their off their new record. And this is this song's called The Arrival. So this is uh, episode 81. Getting into it with Porsche Saban of Kill Rock Stars. This is Filthy Friends with The Arrival. Trouble won't get it 
Portia Sabin. How's it going? Hey, I'm doing well. Right on. Got the uh, the head honcho of of Kill Rockstars Records, as well as the host of the Future of What podcast here with Woo-hoo. me today. Yay! Uh, super pumped to have you on the show. Yes. I think that this real. is uh, the first time I've had a, a fellow podcaster on the Ooh. on the show. So this is We're kind special. of a podcasters collide episode right yeah. here. <laughs> We're very special people, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely want to talk about the Kill Rockstar stuff as well as your podcast future of what yes but uh i thought it'd be fun to just kind of you know take a take a walk down memory lane and, and figure out when you know your musical um like when you formed a relationship with music and and when it really infected you and when you caught that bug um i my parents were weird my father was an actor and so we had nothing but soundtracks of musicals and um one rock album which was sergeant pepper which i think tells you everything you need to know about my musical taste actually because i love robin hitchcock and i feel like robin hitchcock has a (laughs) marries those two things really well for some reason um but i was about 10 i was 10 when i bought my first record and uh i was just an insane music person starting at that age i was kind of a little bit early um a little bit younger than some of my friends who were buying albums. They didn't really get into it till we were probably more around 12. So I didn't have anyone to talk to about music till I got probably into junior high school. Yeah, but, um, but your parents had some, had some records that... Well, those pa- the records that my parents had, that was all they had. And they weren't particularly interested. It was, sure. It's funny. I mean, my father was like a musical theater guy. He actually sang on Broadway and stuff. But he wasn't, you know, they didn't really, neither one of them were the right age to be super into rock. My mom like really liked the Kingston trio. That's it. <laughs> and my dad was like, if it's not Frank Sinatra, I'm not listening to it. Um, so yeah, I was kind of on my own uh, with the music loving. Um, and then I decided I wanted to play an, uh, an instrument. So I took up uh, electric bass at 14 and I never practiced. Cause I found that about myself really fast. <laughs> Like never going to practice. Uh, and then also I never didn't have anyone to play with because the boys, by the time I was 14, the boys had already been playing instruments for a couple of years. So they, I like, they didn't want to play with me cause I was just starting out and I didn't want to play with them cause I was like super embarrassed that I right. was like, ding, 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 ding. And they were all like, you know, they were much better than I was. So I didn't play with anyone until I got to college. And then like, as soon as I got into college, I just had no inhibitions and I just was like, let's do this. So I played in bands throughout college. And then my senior year in college, I um, learned that I could actually play drums, found out that they had a drum room and a like hundred buck drum program where you could take all the lessons you wanted for a hundred bucks. And the day after I took my first drum lesson, I started a Pixies cover band with a bunch of guys. <laughs> nice. And um, we just, and that was it. Like I was, I was in bands for the next 15 years. As, as a drummer? As a drummer, yeah. after that? Sort of the, yeah. that whole uh, experience of, of sitting on that drum set really like kind of move you right away? It was perfect. It was exactly what I wanted. Like it was the thing I didn't know I had been looking for, you know? It was just, just felt just perfect. And also I like to sing. So I ended up in a bunch of bands where I actually sang and played drums at the same time, um, which, you know, me and Phil Collins. Woohoo. Hey, <laughs> I fuck with <laughs> Phil Collins. He's, a, he's my dude. <laughs> Anybody that listens to this podcast knows. Yeah, exactly. But I mess so, with Phil Collins. So. Singing drummers, no problem. Uh, so, yeah, I did. I played in bands for years and um, 
And that was kind of my whole life, you know, during college and then after college. I actually moved after college with my college band to Minneapolis to make it in the music business. Where were you... uh based out originally like when you were going to college and and getting involved in all these bands um i was in grinnell grinnell iowa it's a small liberal arts college in the middle of the cornfields um so i had plenty of time to play in bands so you guys moved to minneapolis we moved to minneapolis to pursue the dream to pursue the dream because you know in the early 90s minneapolis was one of those cities and it's like that post nirvana there was this thing in america post nirvana that like there were certain cities that just the major labels just went went to and just started like signing bands up left and right. It was kind of crazy. And uh, Minneapolis was one of those cities. So we and it was close, you know, to Iowa. So we just moved there. And of course, that's not at all what happened. You know, we broke up after six months and um, I played in a few other bands, but I really found it. I hated Minneapolis. I just man, Minneapolis is not my jam on a many levels. <laughs> So uh, I went home to New York and then I got into a band immediately when I got back home to the New York City and uh, I did it by looking for people to play with in the, in the Village Voice, which now sounds so funny and outdated because, of course, you know, everything's done online now. But that was like, I literally put an ad in the paper and like answered ads from the paper. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Um, during those early years of playing in bands, did you always have... Um like a desire or a sense for like the business aspects of it? Was that something that always caught nope. your attention or were Definitely you just playing not. music and, no. and having a blast? No, I was playing music. I was listening to music. I was going to see bands. You know, I was obsessed with music. Um, I lived in London in 1991 and I probably went out to see live music five nights a week at least, including hitchhiking to the Reading Festival and getting there just in time for, for Nirvana to play there final song they like ended with smells like teen spirit and oh, man. went off stage and then after them was this band chapter house which i'm actually a huge fan of too they were a shoegaze band from england and then after them was sonic youth um and that was an insane that was like i'm so glad i hitchhiked to the reading festival because it was and then we ended up just like crashing in a tent with some people we met there oh wow it was super fun like That's... it was it was a great great weekend but i got to see the incredible bands i mean sisters of mercy godfathers like just some truly great act so um so yeah i mean i went i just i was just obsessed 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 with music i didn't know anything about the business part um and i had you know at that time i didn't have like i wasn't in a band that was serious we were like you know in college so we were just doing whatever we did it wasn't until i got to new york um and got into my second band in new york my first band lasted like three four years and then we broke up because that's what happens to most bands um, after we had done, you know, a significant amount of local uh, shows. And we put together like a cassette, I think, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, I think we just like made a few for our friends. It wasn't like a real thing. We did do one seven inch, a split seven inch with this band called Egghead. Um, and, and that was rad, but you know, that was like one, one thing, one song. Um, and oh and then i got into my second band in new york and then uh that band actually got a record deal like we put out two records uh one on the orchard which is funny because the orchard then was literally my bass player's boyfriend's like little hole in the wall office on orchard street (laughs) and now they're this massive like digital conglomerate i mean you know the orchard is like quite a big business now but it was a very small business then 
Um, so one on Orchard Records and then the second one on a small label out of Detroit. And we, then we toured the country a couple times. And then that's when I started to really get a sense of the music business. Did that uh, tour in the country just like really blow your mind and open your eyes up to some things, having that experience? Absolutely. Um, the thing what, the thing I really learned about myself from touring is that I am a tour slut like I love touring like I would literally get in a van tomorrow I mean I can't anymore now that I have a kid things aren't quite the, the way they were but before yeah. I had a kid like yeah I would just get in the van I'd be like let's go I loved touring it never was it didn't bum me out at all sleeping on floors you know there were some uncomfortable aspects there were some like real weirdos that we ended up spending the night with you know that happens um but overall, I just loved it because there's nothing as exciting as like getting away in the morning, getting in the van and like knowing that you're going to go play a show that night somewhere. Like it's just so exciting. Yeah. Um, just something about waking up in a new city every day. Mm -hmm. It just seems like new life every new day. New life every kinda, day. Kind of deal. It. And it just seems to, I don't know, everybody that I've talked to that's had the opportunity to live that, that sort of life, it just seems to like change their relationships with people as well and, and how they treat those relationships when they're home and, and just like seem to cherish those things a little bit more when you're, when you are at home and, oh, yeah. and not take those relationships for granted a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's probably true. I think you probably go through a bunch of relationships though in the beginning because I think it's really hard to balance that, you know, the, the people at home and with the, with the life on the road because a lot of times the life on the road is a lot more interesting and fun yeah so i think that that is the relationship killer in absolutely a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of times but you know people get older i'm going to do a panel on my podcast for the 100th episode uh with a bunch of musicians who've been who are basically lifers who've been doing this their whole lives so like peter buck corin tucker laura veers um i'm hoping for somebody else as well but you know these people i mean i am so impressed with peter buck like he's just he just goes in vans and goes on tour you know like he is totally his life is like fine with that like that's just part of who he is yeah i have so much respect for that it's cool that he's willing to do that since he's had he's definitely had like the the grand treatment of of that type of stuff in the past like sure it makes you realize that there's more to it than just you know it's like great so you've done it in a bus you've done it like the deluxe way but there's something about touring itself that's that's different from just how you get there yeah and you know how you're treated and how many people you're playing to right you know it's like if it's still thrilling to play to 20 people after paying playing to twenty thousand, then you know that there's that that's like the real deal yeah absolutely doing something right at that point yeah um so what eventually gets you to to portland oregon oh my god there were a lot of back and forth i lived in olympia for five years before we came to portland um and we I wasn't running the business then, but my husband was. He's the one who started it, and he ran it for 15 years. And then he decided to um, he decided to he asked me to take the company over and shut it down. Basically, this is Kill Rockstars. Yeah, Kill Rockstars. Okay, so your your husband started. Yeah, Kill, Kill Rockstars, Rockstars in 1991. Okay. Um, and and then um he wanted to do something different with his life. So he actually asked me to take over the label and then he got a job at a, a major label in New York city and we moved. So I took over Kerr and moved to New York city, which was completely insane because I moved away from our warehouse, our office, all of the other employees. Like I like took over the company and left basically. So the first year from 2006 to 2007 
was pretty insane. I was also managing this band at the time called The Gossip, who were in the midst of going gold in the UK. They went gold in February of 2007. So we were flying to London like monthly with The Gossip. That's crazy. I was flying (laughs) monthly to, to London. So it was a very insane, 2006 to 2007 was like a very insane year for me. It was just, and I mean, the good news was I was flying there from New York, which was like a lot closer and kind of easier to deal with, but it was nuts. So in 2007, my husband got laid off after the, uh, uh, he'd only been eight months at the job, but they did like a 10% layoff at Warner's. And, um, and so he got let go because he was like the last hired, first fired. And so he came home on Friday and he's like, they laid me off. What do you want to do? And I was like, we have to get out of the city because at that time we were just bleeding money. We were living in like a high rise building right next to central park. We had these two big dogs. The dogs were miserable. They hated it there. And like at the time that was like our whole life was these dogs. They, they were just laid on the ground like rugs all the time. They were so sad. And so we're just, I was like, we have to get these dogs back to the West coast. This is crazy. So, I was like, let's move. And he was like, where do you want to go? So then we like went up and down the West coast in our mind and thought about like all the different cities. And I hate Seattle. I hate San Francisco. He hates Seattle. So that's the end of that. We both like LA and have lots of friends there, but then we were like, but then we'd have to put the dogs in the car and drive to a dog park every single day. So that's like kind of not what we want. We're like, we want to be able to open the door and have the dogs run out and be fine. And then like, or get a dog door, you know, and whatever. So we we settled on Portland and and then we ended up moving to Battleground Washington which is, you know, not exactly Portland. But whatever. Somehow we ended up here like we just decided and actually that same earlier that same year, two of my employees had moved from Olympia to Portland and opened a Kill Rockstars office there. So it seemed really perfect to just go ahead and come here because there was already an office. So we did it. Uh, what was sort of like the original idea or like the basis for starting the label? Was it just like something your husband just wanted to, to do or was it just like, was there an initial intent behind it or was it just like, Oh, I want to put some, some friends records out. Yeah. He wanted to document the Olympia scene in 1991 because there was a lot going on in Olympia and he, um, wanted to put out a bunch of local bands. He also was a spoken word artist and he wanted to put out spoken word records. So the first records on Kill Rock Stars are spoken word records. Well, the first record is a spoken word. And it's half half him on one side and Kathleen Hanna on the other side. Um, and he, the second record was a compilation because in the 90s, people still were able to do compilations as kind of like a sampler of like, these are the cool things that are happening. And so he put his next door neighbor, Kurt Cobain's band Nirvana on that sampler. And that came out a month before Nirvana, uh, before Nevermind came out and it sold like 25,000 copies. And so then he was able to finance the label with the money that he made from that. So, um, and then he documented the, the Olympia scene. So he had, he put out unwound local Olympia band, bikini kill, which was like a half Olympia, half DC band. Um, and then he expanded from there. He sort of, you know, he had he was doing a lot at that time of what be, what came to be called riot girl bands. So oh, we yeah. did Bratmobile and Huggy Bear, and um, and and that was kind of you know the the early bands, the Slater Kinney women's early bands, Excuse Seventeen and Heavens to Betsy. And then eventually he put out Slater Kinney, and then um, the you know it's like we just went on from there. And Elliot Smith obviously in 1994 was like a big thing for us. 
well, for the label, sorry. Um, <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> I was doing something completely different. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's how the label got started. Right on. Was there, was there something that, you know, when he said that he was going to leave it to you basically to handle, was there something about it that, that you wanted to keep alive? Well, he had, um, 27 records slated to put out in 2007. So really the first thing that I, you know, the part of him saying, I want you to take over the label and shut it down. It was the second part of that sentence didn't really register because I was like, wait, we have to put out all these records. Like we just had all this huge schedule that we had put out and we had employees and people doing things. And I mean, things were just happening. And so it's like, as we went through 2007 and, you know, we put out all these records and I was learning how to do the, ro- well, I was just learning how to, the ropes of like how to run the label. Um, it just started to seem dumb. Like, why would I stop doing this? It's, this is like a machine that's working and it's like doing its thing. Why would I suddenly stop doing this um and also i had i had found some bands that i wanted to to work with so that's kind of what happened was i ended up signing like three bands that we put out their records in 2008 and those all did pretty well and then um and that was i was like hooked but of course the funny part was that i was hooked and then the next year was like literally the worst year for music in the history of the world because the digital revolution happened and suddenly people thought that music was free and that you didn't have to buy it anymore. Yeah. So it was, you know, I, I sort of presided over this crazy sea change in the whole industry. For sure. Cool. We're going to get in a little musical break here then. We're going to play something off the, uh, the catalog. We got this, uh, the Cindy Wilson song, which is called mystic. Yeah. And Cindy Wilson's from the, the B 52s. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how did you get linked up with, uh, with Cindy? Well, you know, her manager contacted me and told me, you know, sent me the record and I listened to it and I have such respect for, I mean, I think the B-52s are like original punks in my book. Like I absolutely have loved them forever. And, um, and so of course I was like super interested to hear it. And then when I heard it, I was like, whoa, this is really different. This is something new that she's doing. Uh, but I really like the record. And so we decided that we would put it out and work with them. Right. So it's been great. And it comes out in November. Is that right? comes out December 1st. December I think. 1st. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, this is uh, Mystic off the uh, new Cindy Wilson record. Check it out. Fantasy, seven, break, you're falling free, so 
what is what is your uh what is your role as as president now like what's your what's your day-to-day like here at kill rock stars i do a lot of email um do a lot of email. I mean, I don't know. I have a great staff, so that's really nice. You know, everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to do, so it's it's easy in that regard. Um, you know, we have a set rhythm to how we put out albums. So whatever's in the pipeline, you know, I know everybody who works with me is is working on their part of, of what they need to do. So, you know, one of the things I'm doing is looking out for new stuff uh, you know, which, which they used to call a and R. I don't know if they bother to call that anything anymore. Um, and I do the royalties here, which is very important for us. I do that four times a year, uh, which means every three months, which means kind of often that comes up. I'm right. I'm starting that right now, actually. Uh, and that's pretty consuming. Um, but that's a really important part of the business because we, you know, we pride ourselves that we've always paid artists. And if, even if you don't, if you, if you aren't owed money, you're going to get a statement showing what's going on, um, that hopefully you'll be able to understand, uh, you know, transparency, this is the new hot word. And we feel like we've always really tried hard to do that because it's important for artists to understand that they do deserve to make a living and, uh, that they, you know, this is their money. And so they should see, you know, what's coming in and what's going out and where it's all going. Yeah. You, you feel like, um, like making that an important thing is, is just part of who you are because of your experiences of being in bands and stuff. And you're not just someone running a label, but you've, you've had the experience of, you know, touring around and gotten to play in bands and stuff like that. Well, I feel like it's just the right thing to do. And, you know, I never got a statement on either of the records that I put out never seen a statement in my life. And I think most artists don't, and they also don't think they should. And I feel like that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons I started the podcast is I really want artists to understand that they, you know, I want them to understand the business part of this and I want them to understand that they deserve to know what's going on with their money. Um, You know, we have a huge problem in society right now because of this. It's like, I think there is this sort of general cultural belief that like artists don't deserve to get paid and that even artists kind of subscribe to that a little bit, you know? And it's like, we have the sort of like nothing or superstar mentality. There's no weird, there's no middle ground. Right. And the truth is most of the artists that we work with are what you'd call like middle-class journeyman, you know, artists, like people who make, can make a living doing their art they don't have to have a job as a bartender or a waiter or a barista or whatever, but they're not killing it. You know, they're not, they don't have millions. They don't have, you know, right. six houses and 12 cars and they're still touring around in eight passenger still touring vans in an and eight stuff passenger like that. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what they're doing and that's, and that's okay. But that's also something that's completely legit. Like people have to understand that, you know, being a middle-class artist is totally, something that you can and should aspire to being, you know? Yeah. And it just seems like, I don't know, it's just one of those things where it's just the most beneficial thing you can do is learn as much as you can and and be able to handle as much stuff on your own. And it seems like, I don't know, when when you come across one of these middle-class bands, like often the the tour manager is also the the sound engineer or something. And it's just a, I don't know. It's kind of cool to see that renaissance as well. It's just like as as stuff becomes more accessible, like people 
just becoming more involved in in the entire process Mm -hmm. and it seems like there's more like complete artists that are involved in everything and like maybe they're doing all the artwork themselves and you know aside from playing all the music and doing all that stuff it's it's kind of wild yeah totally um yeah as far as um being the head of a label like where do you stand on on the streaming services um well the streaming services have been very beneficial to us but we're also talking about um you know i i don't it's it's really hard to talk about it because it's like if you're dying in the desert like water is a good idea um but you're still dying in a desert, you know, and <laughs> that's still like a, a net negative in your, right. you know, um, so, so the, the issue that we're facing in the industry right now is that streaming is kind of saving our bacon, but why should we have to struggle so hard? You know, it's like, why is it that we are, you know, we, we have to just deal with, we've, we've moved from this economy where you could put out a product, which was vinyl or, cassette or cd and you could sell those it was a product you could sell you could make money back and then you could you know plan your next series of releases based on this idea that you'll be making like an amount of money that seems worthwhile nowadays you know everyone's obsessed with like per stream rate and and you know saying like well i got a million streams on on Spotify and that is like $326 or something like that. And it's like, yeah, that's a problem, right? Where you can no longer make a living wage and not just the artists. I mean, the labels and the artists, right? Because when you have a label like ours where it's a profit share deal, which means it's 50 50, it's like we pay for everything up front, Then we recoup what we paid for. And then as soon as we've recouped it, everything is split 50 50. And so what we do are, business model is we keep our costs really low with the idea that we'll recoup quickly and then everybody makes money. Um, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad model. It's in fact a good model because you're investing in artists, right? You're investing in artists, but you're not over investing. You know, it's like, if we say, Oh, we're going to spend a million dollars on this artist, an artist who's going to sell a thousand copies of something, they will never recoup. We will never recoup. What's the point of that, right? That is not a good business model. But if we say, okay, we're going to spend $10,000 on that artist we might have a shot at recouping and they might then start to make money too. So it's like you have to sort of manage your expectations, but even given managed expectations in this marketplace, you can't say anymore. We we're sure they'll sell a thousand copies. We're we're sure they'll sell 10,000 copies or whatever. I mean, I remember, you know, it happened in my, during my stewardship of this label that we went from uh, an economy in which, like a good selling indie record, like where you'd be like stoked, sold a hundred thousand copies, right? You, if you sold a hundred thousand copies, you'd be like, yes, right? To now, today, if you sell ten thousand copies, you are like, yes, <laughs> it's the win. <laughs> that is huge, right? Like you just totally, like it's it's huge. Yeah. What? Three thousand. Three thousand. Three thousand is like going platinum. Three thousand is like platinum. <laughs> totally. It's true. It's it's really true. And that's tragic on a lot of levels, yeah. right? Because it's not that people don't still love music. They do. You know, there's more fans for a lot of artists than there were before. It's just that the way people have moved to the consumption of music has, has changed. 
So it doesn't matter as much how many fans you have. Um, I, it, I'm sorry. It doesn't produce as much income. Having, having more fans does not necessarily produce more income. And that, I think, is crazy, right? Right. Because if someone loves your, you know, it's like, look at LaCroix water, right? Like that became so huge, right? What if you only got paid for like, LaCroix only got paid on like every 10th case, yeah, like if everybody just paid $10 everybody a month paid to get $10 unlimited LaCroix. $10 a month LaCroix. and you could just get as much LaCroix as you wanted, right? I'd be in. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> but LaCroix would have to go out of business because right. they do not, they wouldn't have a business model that allows them to like keep making bottled delicious water. Yeah. No, I feel you. It's, it's this crazy like double-edged sword because the accessibility of being able to like, I don't know. I have an Apple music subscription. Yeah. Right. And it's just so awesome that like every Friday I'm like, Oh, what came out today? And I can like go through those records and, and that's very cool. But also see how that can like take the value away from the product a little bit. If no one's actually picking up any physical copies and it's like, right. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very adamant about not being one of those people who's like in my day, yeah. it was better this is the marketplace. This is what we're, where we're at. Right. right. And we have to do the best that we can given what we've gotten. Um, that said, you know, I think Apple music is actually coming out pretty much smelling like a rose these days. They're doing they're you know, because when people do have subscriptions, you know, Apple is still paying pretty well and the downloads are of course, you know, paying well if people still get downloads. Um, and you know, of course the vinyl is doing great. People are buying a lot yeah, of vinyl. It's awesome to see that. And that's really, that's really rad. So I'm not bellyaching about like, I wish it was different. I'm just saying it has created a, a difficult problem for the simple reason that there's less, there's less availability of money to allow for more of those middle-class artists, right? which is what we actually would like. You know, I want to be able to help people have careers as artists so they don't have to be baristas. They don't have to be graphic designers or whatever the heck they do. That's not their art, you know, for sure. Yeah, I just wanted to get your take on that for sure. You know, it's, it just seems to be the hot topic a lot of times. And even talking to, you know, local bands that don't have a huge following and, and just, the, you know, seems like they're so a lot of them are just kind of caught in between. And it's like, do I put this out on a streaming service or do I just keep it up on the band camp or do we put the record out for six months and hold off on putting it on streaming and seeing if people like buy physical copies in those six months and then put it out. But right. Yeah. Um, one thing I love about killer rock stars right now is the amount of comedians that you guys are housing <laughs> on the label. Yeah. Um, who was the, the first comedian that you put on the label? It was Kurt Brownoller. Yeah. For and sure. we, we love him. Um, yeah, no, we've had a lot of fun with comedy. We've been really enjoying that. Um, and I think, you know, we're we're trying to do it in a curated, thoughtful way so that we're not just putting out tons and tons of stuff or just anything, you know, but we really get to ch- pick and choose people we want to work with. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, is that is it much different than working with, like, a band? Well... It depends. I mean, it depends on the person. I would say my standard response to that question is usually that comedians are a little bit easier to work with than bands because they're very, very clear about this being a business. They're not confused for sure about that because they've been struggling 
all this time, you know, however many years right, they've been doing right. it to make ends meet because they realize they're like, wait, I'm taking this leap. You know, I'm not a barista. I'm not a graphic designer. I am a full time comedian. And so they've had to get familiar with it as a business really quickly. And um, bands are somewhat insulated from that. I think a lot of the time, especially since usually there's more than one person and, and when there's multiple people, you can kind of, you know, it's just a little, you can keep it like, on the fantasy level for longer, you know, than, than that. Oh my God, hard reality. So comedians are always easier to deal with in terms of the business because they just get it. They're just like, Oh yeah, business, right? Yeah. What are we making? How much? Blah, blah. Um, and then the other part about comedians is that they're so much cheaper for us because it costs like 250 bucks to record a comedy album. Right. <laughs> and then there's like, that's it. Like there so are a, a whole a lot of mixing of, that goes into the production or yeah, like bringing in just, players. You're not in the thousands, right. Of dollars of, for, for making the record. And, um, so that's you, all of our albums have recouped so fast compared to how, um, how, how quickly a band will recoup. And I love that. I love writing checks four times a year to people because they deserve it. This is their money and they've worked hard. And and that's, you know, it's like my job as a label person, as a person on a label, is to try to facilitate other people having careers, people that we believe in, right? That's like the best that we can hope for is that we facilitate careers. So I want to be sending as many checks as possible four times a year instead of, it's like, I don't know, you know, that's the other problem with sort of the big picture. And the other reason I started the podcast is because I feel like the music business has gotten this terrible reputation in the last 20 years because people only know about major labels, right? And major labels, I'm here to tell you, probably are trying to screw you. They probably are. They're not interested in paying you. You know, they have... And major labels are in a completely different business than indie labels are. Major labels are in the business of producing hit songs, right? right. Regardless of artist. Who gives a shit Dollars. about the artist? <laughs> They're in the, the business of producing hit songs. And there's a cabal of radio producers, and, you know, radio promoters, and songwriters, and um, publishers, and all these people who are involved in this. All good people, I'm not you know, saying they're bad people or anything, but it is a different business, right? We are in the business, in, in indie labels, of helping artists have careers. You know, for the vast majority of indie labels, we don't have songwriters writing songs for our artists. Our artists write their own songs, you know? And we're interested in finding, finding talent and helping that talent develop and get to a point where they can be career artists, they can be self-sustaining middle-class artists, Right. Um, completely different business model from the majors. So that's one reason I started this podcast because I was just like, people have got to understand that there is a whole other world out here of people whose entire purpose is to help artists make a living as artists, right? That's all we do, right? Indie promoters, indie distributors, indie PR people, indie um, booking agents. That's all we do is try to help people have like a good, strong middle-class career that they can sustain for multiple years. You know, that's all we're trying to do. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we are not trying to take their money. There's there's literally no way in which I could scam an artist that wouldn't screw me over, too, because it's a profit share. Right. Right. I'm not interested in taking your money. I'm not interested in taking your dollar fifty. Okay. Yeah, 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 for (laughs) sure. It's very cool that it all comes from like that place because I don't know, aside from just like 
wanted to have my own goofy radio show. Like that's, I mean, that's why I got involved in even doing this. It's just like, I don't know. There was, there was nobody looking out for me or trying to like help me. It didn't seem like when I was in bands and, and trying to like figure out how to like turn it into something sustainable. It was just like, no man, you just got to go, you know, make that big record and, and get that big deal, you know? So it's cool to see it come from like a, uh, like a genuine kind place, I think. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, it's, I think that's how it's been for 30 years in this country with indie labels, but indie labels don't get the press that major labels do for the simple reason that we don't get songs on the radio because we've been closed out of commercial radio. And that's a fact. There's a couple indies now that have access to commercial radio because they've gotten to the size where they can't be ignored and they've hired a bunch of the promo people from majors. So they have those relationships and connections now. So like, for example, Taylor Swift is on a, an indie label, but it's a big, big indie. Um, and, uh, you know, some other indies have, have recently started to get some radio play as well. I'm talking about commercial terrestrial radio. Yeah. Um, indie music is, of course, massive on... Um, internet radio, satellite radio, because indie music is the music that people really want to hear. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that's not, a, that's not a surprise, but I'm talking about commercial terrestrial radio, which surprisingly is still the second biggest way that people, that people in general hear music, you know? And I think it's largely cause it's just in cars. It's mostly in cars. It's, you just push one button, you know, if you don't want to pay for satellite TV, I mean, satellite radio in your car, you're just, you're still going to get AM FM radio. Right. So it's just a super easy way for people to to hear music. And then even even those people that might listen on the radio and then go home and plug a station into their Pandora, they're probably drawing off what's coming off the radio. So Absolutely. they're just like listening to the Absolutely. all the, the huge pop music. Right. Um Yeah. So starting the podcast, the future of what? It was just just kinda wanting to further like educate people and, and help people in in trying to succeed as, as like a, a middle-class artist and making yeah. that like a, something real for people. Exactly. And, you know, getting people to try to demystify the industry, you know, talking to people who are professionals who do this every day for a living so that people can understand how the business works. And I have, you know, I'm happy to, to say it as many times as we need to say it, you know, like just give people the information as much as we need to because it's hard to understand and and like I said we're com- we're combating this cultural sort of like fantasy of what it is to be an artist and what it is to be a musician and um you know even the idea that you don't really deserve to get paid you know is something that is in existence in our in our culture so it's like, we got to say that. No, you do deserve to get paid. You're working. This is work. <laughs> You're doing work. You deserve to get paid. Um, and then I also try to stay, keep people abreast of the legislative issues because there's always a lot going on with that and all sorts of wacky hijinks, you know, in the legislative world. And then, you know, things like the Spotify lawsuits, um, publishing lawsuits that just went down in the last year. So we talk about a lot of different issues that are going to affect people's business as musicians. Um, is there any particular episodes of the podcast that you that are like maybe some of your favorites that 
that you would point to as a good entry point for for someone maybe getting into the future of what podcast oh. any of those that stick out i know you're you're creeping up on 100 yeah we're gonna that's awesome yeah, congrats on that thanks yeah, it's, you're doing it's a live ridiculous. event for that uh yeah we're doing a live event at holocene on october 25th so that's gonna be a lot of fun really really looking forward to that um you know, I don't know. I, I have such a short memory. I always do stuff and then forget immediately. But there was um, there was a recent episode we did on this really scary piece of legislation called the Transparency in Music uh, Licensing and Ownership Act um, that I think people should listen to because that's something that's actually on the table right now in Congress. And if it passes, it is going to fuck us all up big time. So that's a really scary one. Oh man, <laughs> um, I would I would listen to that. Um, I don't know what else is good. Um, I don't know, Ben. What's what's a good podcast episode? Can you remember any of them? Uh, yeah, hit us with a good one, Ben. Oh God. Yeah, give the future of what a five star ranking. Yeah. That very much helps. Yes, please, please, please go and do I that. Tell, I tell people every week. <laughs> oh, does good music prevail? Yeah, that's a good one too. Episode ninety three. Yeah, that's a good one because that's the one where we discuss. Um, you know, I'm always getting these emails from people who are like, uh, you know, they want me to put their record out, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to put your record out, but you know, keep doing your thing. And they're like, oh, well, I can't, I, I can't um, tour and I can't do anything. I just want my music out there in the world. And then I'm like, but that's a really bad idea because <laughs> then no one, I mean, it'll just, you'll just put it on the internet and then it'll disappear and no one will ever hear it. And they're like, oh, but doesn't good music rise to the top? And I'm like, <laughs> no, not like that. I mean... So it's a good episode, I think, because I talked to some interesting people who had really good takes on how to talk about that. Because it's not that there isn't music that's better than other music. There certainly is. And there, there, it's also not that good music doesn't rise to the top in a certain way, right? Like, there is good music out there. And if we're, if we're all on the same playing field of, like, music that is being supported, let's just say, let's just say, for example, music that's being supported by a label and promoted by a promoter, like on that level, then sure, maybe there's some music that's better than other, than, than other music. Right. And maybe that'll get like written about more or whatever, but it really has, it, it's like, it's so subjective and it's so like, what do you mean by good? What do you mean by the top? Right. Like, where are you trying to go with this? You know, if you're just talking about like the world and a value judgment and like the, the great music is going to percolate to the top, that is a myth. That is a complete <laughs> crazy myth. Like, listen to Top 40 Radio. Do you really think that's the best music that's out there? That music fucking sucks, most, mostly. It's, it's not terrible. Great all the time, that's for sure. <laughs> it's terrible, you know? I mean, I, I thought I was going to put my head through a wall the other day because I had to, I heard, heard that Chainsmokers song like the, for the fifth time or whatever <laughs> in one day. And I was just like, that's it. I'm going to stab myself in the eye with a fork. Like, this is terrible. But... um. You know, but there's a reason it's being played all the time on the radio. And that reason, folks, boys and girls, is money. Them dollar dollar bills. It's got nothing to do with the value of that song, you know, as a better piece of art than another piece than another piece of art. So it's just I get really frustrated with that when people say stuff like that to me, because I'm just like, 
you're living in the fantasy world. You're not living in the world of reality. And I guess that's the the like bummer part of my podcast and the bummer part of my job and my life is that I constantly have to be telling people the truth, right? Yeah. It's sad in a way because it's like people want to live in this fantasy world of like, but I love playing in a band and I love rocking out with my friends and I love touring and I love doing all this fun stuff. And wait, I don't understand. Why aren't we famous? Like what happened? And it's like, dudes, you're just ignoring, you're living in the fantasy and you're not, you're not paying attention to the reality, but there is a reality. And if you're interested in that, I'd be happy to tell you about it. Uh, That's rad. It's, I mean, yeah, it sucks that you have to be be the truth (laughs) dropper on some of that, but for the, like you said, for those who are interested, you know, they can learn some things and, and maybe actually have a sustainable career. And I think it's, I don't know, it's important to me to like, as as cool as it is as it is to you know have both like the local bands on and the touring artists as well i think it's been it's been fun to like kind of branch out and and speak to like some industry folk like yourself just because i don't know that's just like another thing as a kid growing up playing music i don't think you realize that like even those industry jobs are are something that exist yeah sure no you don't know or that you're yeah. just like usually being told that it's a one in a million chance that you're going to like anything is going to happen for your music career or like, Oh, how are you going to get a job at that label or whatever? Like, so I think it's nice to like shed some light that there, there is some opportunity out there if you're willing to like work for it. It just might not be the, you know, the huge glamorous rock star life. You know? Right. But I mean, don't you agree that it's like, I think that we're hampered in the world of music just like you're hampered in the world of acting, right? Of, of movies with it's, it's, there's too much glamor, right? Right. So you, it's like if let, let, let's say I, I was a kid and I like really wanted to be an accountant. Like everybody that I know would be like, awesome dude, my dad's an accountant. Why don't you go intern at his office this summer? And he'd be like, okay. And then you'd go and you'd like get a job interning for an accountant and you'd learn how to do the job. Right. That is so normal. But it's like with music, for some reason, people are just like rock stars. And then they forget like everything under just rock star, right? Yeah. And it's like, no, it's just a business where people go every day. They put on clothes and they go to work. Like, for sure. <laughs> this is just a job. Well, and also, I think you just like so often see people that do hit the top so quickly without having to put like a lot of the work in. Like, those people fizzle out usually. And and they're just like obviously not nurtured by the label, like those I huge labels just, either, right? It's ironic that you say that because I just read a story. I just came out here and ranted to my friends, Ben and James, who work for me, uh, about um, I just read a story about a girl. Are we going to talk about the Catch Me Outside girl? It's not the Catch Me Outside <laughs> girl. It's a different girl, if you can believe it, because apparently this is happening all the time with major labels who is um, 15 and is signed to Interscope. And she, as far as I can tell, I mean, maybe she's the greatest artist since sliced bread, but she's 15 and she has, she put a song on SoundCloud and it got like a whole ton of hits. People listened to it and I guess they talked about it and liked it. And then she put out a song that her brother's band wrote. She like did a cover of it. And then a bunch of people liked that too. And now she's signed to Interscope and she's 15 years old. And here I I will tell you why that makes me upset. Because A, that poor kid, right? This is like, what is the rest of her life going to be when in six months from now they dump her or eight months or 
25 months from now, she's out the door because she didn't perform the way that, you know, it's like, it's not fair to her. Her whole, her whole musical life could be ruined by this, right? Or worse, she, she could become a huge star at 15, which will also ruin your life in a completely different and way more horrible way. Right. So like both outcomes are awful for her. Right. And nobody cares. No. Instead, people are like, I wish that would happen to me. And it's like, you don't know what you're wishing for. You know, these are both really bad things. Right. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's very interesting. It's horrible. Um, what would you say your, your like biggest takeaway from all of this experience with like running the label and starting the podcast? Like, I don't know what, what is that big takeaway for you from all this? Or like, what is, what's something that kind of sticks with you from the experience? Or keeps you keeps you going to to want to keep. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there's all there's no shortage of people who want to get into the music business, right? So I feel like there's an endless audience for for me telling them the depressing, harsh truth, which isn't you know it's like that's not that doesn't make me happy. Like, oh yay, I get to tell more people the depressing, harsh truth. Really, I think the part that's fun for me is I get to constantly talk to other people who are in this business and we get to um, just demystify that part, you know, demystify what we do. You know, these are jobs and it's not it's not um, impossible to get a job like this, you know, and if you are interested in the music business, there's no reason you couldn't do one of these fun things that we do. I mean, for the most part, this is a really fun job. And most of the people I know really enjoy their jobs in this, in this industry. You just have to understand what it is. You, and you can't be just living with the rose colored glasses and thinking this is all like rock stars and Coke parties or whatever. Craft service <laughs> tables and shit. Yeah. <laughs> like whatever fancy thing that you think it is. And you know, on the rare occasions when those things do happen, then it's fun. You're like, woo, this is cool. I get to go to do something, you know, glamorous and fun. Like I get to wear a ball gown once a year and do an awards show. Like that's super fun. But, but that's not the, the day to day of this job. Right. And, and that's okay. You know, it doesn't always have to be uh, parties and ball gowns. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it's, I don't know, it's always easier to work hard when you're like doing something you enjoy doing or something you love. Right. So. Exactly. And it's worth it. I mean, you know, being able to work with musicians whose art you love is always like, that's why all of us get into it in the first place, I think. Um, and so that part is always really rewarding and really fulfilling. Um, very cool. I appreciate your your time and getting to hear about all this stuff. This is, no problem. It's a lot of fun. Uh, where can people keep up with the future of what? It's available everywhere you can get podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, wherever, and also at killrockstars.com backslash the future of what? New episodes every week? New episodes every week. 100th episode coming up. Be really rad. Awesome. I'll definitely put all the details for that in the show notes as well as the links for Kill Rockstars and the podcast and whatnot. Um, we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show, which is, it's a program. <laughs> so <laughs> if we get the Porsche saving, it's a program, we can, uh, we can wrap this thing up. It's a program. She nailed it. That's Porsche, everybody. <laughs> Thanks so much for hanging out. We're going to play it out with a, a song from the, the Harmar Superstar record. 
and uh, this is a very cool jam I think to to play the episode out with it's called uh, How Did I Get Through the Day (laughs) awesome thanks we will catch you on the flip side Portland It's a program.